Over these next eight days, I'll be sharing three messages focusing on the miracle of the incarnation. So today will be part one. Part two will be on Christmas Eve as a part of that online Christmas Eve service. And then part three will be uh, back here next Sunday uh, online for our Sunday morning service. So I'll be sharing... Uh, these three messages over the next eight days. I'm excited about this message series because I think it is so rich and it is so important and it'll make your Christmas celebration so much better. Like many of you, I enjoy a good superhero movie. <laughs> Do you like superhero movies? I really like them a lot. It's uh, one of my guilty pleasures. And some of the superhero movies that I especially like are those that tell an origin story. Uh, how someone became an average, unimpressive person and was somehow transformed into a superhero. Uh, for instance, there was Bruce Banner. Bruce Banner. He was a very intelligent scientist, but other than that, he, there wasn't much special about him. But one day he was exposed to a lethal dose of gamma radiation. Gamma radiation at that level would have killed most men. But it didn't kill Bruce Banner, did it? It made him big, <laughs> made him green, made him almost eight feet tall and weigh a thousand pounds. It made Bruce Banner incredible. He became the Incredible Hulk. And then, of course, there was the young teenager named Peter Parker. Peter Parker was an everyday, nerdy high school kid. Nothing impressed him about him. He was a weakling. He was smart, but he was kind of puny. Until the day he got bit by a radioactive spider. That spider could have killed him, but it didn't kill Peter Parker, did it? It made him amazing. He became the amazing Spider-Man. Having superhuman strength, able to climb and scale walls that no other man could climb and be able to sling webs like none other. He became amazing. And then my personal favorite, we had a man by the name of Steve Rogers who wanted so much to enlist in the army and help fight for America in World War II. Well, he joined the cause as the 90-pound weakling he was a scrawny soldier, barely made it into the ranks, but he was going through boot camp and training to become a soldier, and then he was injected with the super soldier serum. And this wimpy guy grew a foot tall within seconds, and he gained a 100 pounds, most of it being muscle, and he became the world's first super soldier that we know as Captain America. Now, what do all of these origin stories have in common? A man who is physically weak is metamorphosized into a man who is physically strong. Someone who is a nobody is transformed into a somebody. A guy who doesn't stand out in a crowd suddenly stands head and shoulders above everyone else in the crowd. Now, do you agree that the greatest superhero of all time is Jesus Christ. Do you agree with that? But when you think about it, the origin story of Jesus Christ is the complete opposite of all of these other origin stories for these other superheroes that are fictional. In heaven, the Son of God was all-powerful. 
But in order to become our greatest hero here on earth, he gave up his power. In heaven, the Son of God was a somebody. But in order to become our greatest superhero here on earth, Jesus became a nobody. On the path to becoming the greatest hero, he really was a nobody. In heaven, the Son of God stood head and shoulders above everyone else. But when he came to save the world, he made himself so small that he fit inside a teenage girl's womb. Remarkable. When you think about it, compared to Jesus, the Hulk isn't that incredible, is he? Spider-Man isn't that amazing compared to Jesus. And Captain America isn't that super compared to Jesus. The incarnation of Jesus Christ is a miracle. And we're going to savor this miracle together over the next week. This morning, we're going to take one glorious verse from John chapter 1. And we're going to turn it like a gem in our hand and observe the glory of the Christ child, Jesus Christ. That glorious verse is going to be John chapter 1, verse 14, that reads, The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Please pray with me. Lord Jesus, Almighty Son of God, we come to You today. And we, Lord, are are just going to freely confess that we want to see Your glory. We want to behold Your glory. So would You open our ears to hear? And would You open the eyes of our heart to receive what You have for us today? Lord, help us to see Your glory. And it's in Your name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, this morning we're focusing on just one verse, John 1, verse 14. But in order to make sure that we're not taking this verse out of context, in order to make sure that we understand why this verse appears in John 1, where it appears, I want you to follow along in your Bibles as I read for us the first 14 verses of John chapter 1. So please be in your Bibles in John chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. We read, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. There came a man who was sent from God. His name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all men might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, He gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent nor of human decision, 
or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the father, full of grace and truth. Well, some of the greatest theologians of all time have spent years exploring these 14 verses. They are so rich. This morning we'll only peek our heads into the main shaft of this gold mine to explore what John is teaching us in these 14 verses, particularly in the last of those verses, John 1, verse 14. Take a look at verse 1 again. It's one of the best-known verses in all of John. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In verse 1, John the Apostle begins to shine a spotlight on the Word of God. The Greek word he uses here in verse 1 is the Greek word logos. It's a Greek word logos. And the ancient Greeks, when they used this word logos, they interpreted it this way. They said that logos, word, refers to the spoken word and also to the unspoken word that rests in our minds before we speak it. We would sometimes today call that reason. Greek philosophers believed reason guides all things in the universe. Now, that's how the Greeks, particularly the Greek philosophers, understood this word Logos, but the Jews in ancient times understood this word logos a little bit differently. According to the Jews, logos was something that was much more spiritual. They said God created his word, logos, before the creation of the world, and it was through his word, through this logos, that he created the whole universe. So you with me so far? The Greeks believed it was reason, And somehow that reason ordered the universe. The Jews took it a step further and and kind of spiritualized it a bit more, saying that God created Logos before Genesis 1-1, and then God, through Logos, created the universe. Okay, So both the Greeks and the Jews believed that Logos was an it. But John the Apostle, from the very first verse of his gospel account, blows away all the notions of the Greeks and the Jews by saying this. From the very first verse, he says, Logos is not an it, Logos is a he. The word is not an it, the word is a he. And Logos wasn't created by God. In the very beginning, Logos was with God, and Logos was God. And as the first 14 verses of John chapter 1 unfold, it becomes clear that the Logos, the word of God, is none other than Jesus Christ himself. Jesus Christ is with God, and Jesus Christ is God. So we have to try to wrap our minds around that meaning. We have to try to wrap our minds around the implications of this. For starters, what it means is that every characteristic that is true of God is also true of Jesus Christ because He is God. What is God's number one characteristic? We've 
talked about this in the last week or two at Impact. His number one characteristic is His holiness. God is holy. So Jesus Christ's number one characteristic is His holiness. He is set apart from all creation. That's what holy means. He is set apart because He alone is the Creator. Everything else in the universe is created. Jesus is set apart from all creation as the Creator. Jesus is set apart from all wickedness and all corruption and all sin. Jesus, the Word of God, is holy. Amen? But not only that, Every other characteristic of God is also a characteristic of Jesus. Jesus is abounding in love and mercy and faithfulness. He is patient. He is kind. He is righteous and He is just. Every characteristic of God is also a characteristic of Jesus Christ because once again, Jesus is God. Logos, the Word, is God. Every name that describes God in Scripture also describes Jesus Christ. Look at this sample list of names from the Old Testament that are given to God. Elohim means the all-powerful Creator. Jesus is the all-powerful Creator. Jesus is Elohim. Jesus is El Shaddai, God Almighty. Jesus is Yahweh. Remember, that's the holiest name of God in the Old Testament. Jesus is Yahweh, the great I Am, self-existent One. Jesus is Yahweh Yireh, the Lord my provider. Jesus is Yahweh Rapha, the Lord who heals me. Jesus is Yahweh Shalom, the Lord of peace. Jesus is Yahweh Sabaoth, Lord of the angel armies. Remember that Jesus is the Son of God. He isn't alone all of God. There is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Trinity together. But every characteristic and every name that applies to God applies to Jesus because He is 100% God. Amen? He is divine. So behold this Christmas week, Jesus Christ in all of His glory. Jesus Christ, all-powerful, all-knowing, and ever-present as our Son of God. And when we do, when we behold Jesus Christ in all His glory, it makes John 1 verse 14 all the more breathtaking. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us, and we have seen His glory. The glory of the one and only from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, let's turn this little gem together in our hand. That gem, John 1, verse 14. The Word became flesh. Let's stop there. Just look at those first four words with me. The Word became flesh. Let's see if we can wrap our minds around these first four words of verse 14. The New Living translates it this way. The Word became human. I like that. The Contemporary English Version says it almost the same way. The Word became a human being. The point is clear. Somehow, some way, the Almighty, all-knowing, ever-present Son of God became human. In an amazing moment of time, the Word became flesh. Amen? I think Pastor Max Lucado describes this beautiful incarnation 
so wonderfully in his book, God Came Near. Max Lucado writes these words. It all happened in a moment, a most remarkable moment. As moments go, that one appeared no different than any other. If you could somehow pick it off the timeline and examine it, it would look exactly like the ones that had passed while you have read these words. It came and it went. It was preceded and succeeded by others just like it. It was one of the countless moments that have marked time since eternity became measurable. But in reality, that particular moment was like none other. For through that segment of time, a spectacular thing occurred. God became a man. While the creatures of earth walked unaware, divinity arrived. Heaven opened herself and placed her most precious one in a human womb. The omnipotent in one instant made himself breakable. He who had been spirit became pierceable. He who was larger than the universe became an embryo. And he who sustains the world with a word chose to be dependent upon the nourishment of a young girl. God as a fetus. Holiness sleeping in a womb. The creator of life being created. God was given eyebrows, elbows, and two kidneys and a spleen. He stretched against the walls and floated in the amniotic fluids of his mother. God had come near. Wow. Wow. If you think about these words, really think about these words. It will blow your mind. The all-powerful Creator made Himself breakable. He who had been spirit became pierceable. He who was larger than the universe became an embryo. He who sustains the world chose to be dependent upon the nourishment of a young girl. If that doesn't blow your mind, nothing will. Some Christians make the mistake of thinking Jesus gave up His divine nature in order to become human. Well, Jesus did put aside His power and He did put aside much of His privilege. But make no mistake, He did not put aside His divine nature. Jesus Christ was 100% God. But He was also 100% human when God came down and the incarnation took place. Try to wrap your mind around what that means. It means that when the Son of God made Himself a human baby, He cried when He was hungry. And He fussed when He got gassy. And His poops were just as stinky as yours and mine. It's true. And when the Son of God was a toddler, just like you and me, He fell a few dozen times before He actually walked successfully. And He got mad when other kids swiped His favorite toy. And he made his way through childhood, and as he did, he got bumps and bruises and had his feelings hurt just like you and me. As a teenager, the Son of God might have had pimples. Imagine that, Jesus with pimples as a teenager. He could have had crooked teeth. He might have had bad breath. He might have been bad at algebra and had the worst voice in the choir. Could have been. It blows our minds to think that Jesus Christ was 100% God, but it should also blow our minds to think that He was at the same time 100% man as He walked on this earth for 33 years. Many of us don't like to think 
of Jesus Christ with pimples and B.O. It seems somehow irreverent to do so. But you and I need to think about these things, especially at Christmas. Don't try to remove the manure from the manger. Don't pretend that Jesus never caught a cold or stubbed His toe or hit His thumb with a hammer. We don't have a Savior and Lord who was just partially human. He was 100% human so that He could accomplish 100% of what He came to earth to do. The Word became flesh. Let's turn the little gem and look at those next few words in verse 14. And made His dwelling among us. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. Now these three English words, made His dwelling, are a translation of one single word in the original Greek. And that word is eskenosin, which literally translates as tabernacled or camped in a tent. So wrap your mind around this little nugget. The Apostle John is literally saying here in John 1 verse 14 that the all-powerful, all-knowing, ever-present Son of God pitched a tent among us. The Word of God tabernacled among us. So what does that tell us? Well, for starters, it tells us that Jesus was just here with us temporarily in the flesh. Because obviously, when you pitch a tent, it is not a permanent dwelling, is it? It's a temporary dwelling. Jesus was just here for a little over 33 years in the flesh. But more importantly, when John writes that Jesus tabernacled among us, he is identifying Jesus as God's new tabernacle here on earth. Remember that for several hundred years, the Jewish people lived in the Holy Land without having a permanent temple in Jerusalem. And so when Moses had led his people out of their their uh, captivity in Egypt, as they traveled that 40 years to the edge of the promised land, during that 40-year journey, God spoke to Moses. He didn't just give him the Ten Commandments. He really gave him 613 laws. We call them the 613 laws of Moses or the Old Testament law. And part of those laws were the ceremonial law where God was very specific on how He wanted them to make His tabernacle. The place where His people, as they were there in the wilderness, and even after they settled in the promised land, where they would worship Him and where His Spirit would reside and dwell. And that would be the place where their leader Moses would be able to meet with God. Not quite face-to-face, but as close as any man could meet with God face-to-face, Moses did. And so that was his tabernacle, where God's glory would dwell, and particularly would dwell in the most holy place, the, the back room inside that tent, inside that tabernacle. And when the Israelites were camped in the desert, do you remember where the tabernacle was located in the camp? It was located right in the center of their camp. Why was that? Because God wanted them to understand that His glory, His presence, must be in the center of their nation. must be in the very center of their community. So God had the tabernacle placed right in the middle. 
And each of the 12 tribes of Israel was given a specific campsite. And so the way God worked it out, he had three of those 12 tribes of Israel camped north of the tabernacle. And three of the 12 tribes were camped to the south of the tabernacle. Three were camped to the east, and the final three were camped to the west. And that's the way God had planned it. And so you had three tribes, north, south, east, and west, total of 12. And so you would think with a bird's eye view, if you were able to look at that camp as they were camped in the desert with the tabernacle in the middle and three tribes, north, south, east, and west, all spread out, you would think that it would look like a plus sign, wouldn't you? The camp was laid out like a plus sign. But it didn't actually work that way. You see, God knew that some of the tribes were larger than others. It turns out that the three tribes camped to the south side of the tabernacle. Their total number of people was roughly equal to the total of the three tribes on the opposite side. North and south had virtually the same number of people. But God knew camped to the west side. There were smaller tribes than those camped to the east. So if you were to have a bird's eye view of the camp of Israel as they were wandering through the wilderness for 40 years, that camp would look like a cross in the desert. Isn't that remarkable? That God was foreshadowing what would happen some 1,300 years later when the Son of God became man and 33 years later would die on a cross displaying the glory of God as the glory of God would radiate from the center of that camp in the desert, the glory of God would radiate from Jesus Christ as He would hang on the cross 1,300 years later. What an awesome God we serve. What is John 1.14 telling us? It's telling us that when the Word became flesh, He set up a new tabernacle among us, But this time it wasn't a tabernacle made of canvas and wood poles. This new tabernacle was a man, the God-man, Jesus Christ. And one day He would stretch His body on a cross and display God's glory. Well, let's turn the gem one final time and look at the last part of verse 14. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace. And truth. Many Bible scholars point out that the Apostle John was one of only three apostles who witnessed Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. Many of you remember that story. You can read it for yourself in Matthew chapter 17, verses 1 through 8. Jesus, when he was on that mountain with three of his apostles, Peter, James, and John, Jesus was suddenly transfigured before them. What does that mean? Well, Matthew describes it this way. Jesus' face shone like the sun, and His clothes became as white as the light of the sun. And Moses and Elijah appeared and talked with Jesus. They were able, those three apostles, they were able to get a glimpse of Jesus in His heavenly glorified form. The other nine apostles didn't get to witness that, but those three did. On that day, John was able to see much more of Jesus' glory than he had ever seen. So many Bible scholars believe that here in John 1, verse 14, John has the Mount of Transfiguration in mind when he says, we beheld his glory. 
That could be. But Jesus also displayed His glory by resisting temptation. Jesus also displayed God's glory when He taught as no other man had ever taught. And Jesus also displayed God's glory as He performed miracles and opened the eyes of the blind and drove out demons and raised the dead. No man could ever do those things until Jesus Himself empowered others of His followers to do those same things. There were so many ways that Jesus displayed His Father's glory during those 33 years He was here on earth. But how did Jesus most display God's glory? Especially the glory of His grace and His truth. Well, we could ask that same question a simpler way. Why did Jesus come to earth? Over the past few minutes, we've been wrapping our mind around the reality of what happened. The Word became flesh. But we need to ask a slightly deeper question, possibly. Why did the Word become flesh? Why did Jesus come to earth? What was the point of it all? Why? We've studied the what. What about the the why of it all? Well, some might answer, well, Jesus wanted to experience life on earth. Uh, That's why He became flesh and dwelt among us. He wanted to experience life on earth. Well, isn't that kind of like someone who lives in Newport Beach saying, I'm going to sell my mansion and move to Barstow so I can experience what Barstow's like? It's not likely to happen, is it? And it's not likely that that's the reason that Jesus wanted to come to earth. Others might say, well, uh, Jesus came to earth to show us how to resist temptation. Well, that's definitely getting warmer. You go over to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, and we read, We do not have a high priest, Jesus, who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without Sin. So, yes, in a sense, Jesus came to earth so he could face every temptation and overcome every temptation so he could help us when we are tempted in the same way. Maybe Jesus came to earth to teach us how to live a life that's pleasing to God. Yeah, that's getting pretty close as well. But I believe, I believe the greatest reason that Jesus came to earth was because Jesus came to earth to die. I think that's very clear in the Gospel of John. The main reason why the Word of God became flesh was so that He could die. That's the main reason He came. That's the main reason He became flesh. He could not die unless He became human. Pastor John Piper, I think, says it so well. Look at these words. He clothed Himself with flesh that he may die. Truth is upheld because sin is punished. And grace abounds because we don't get punished. He gets punished. That's why he came. That's why he had to have flesh so that nails could go through it. So his side could be pierced and according to prophecy. So blood and water could flow out. So he could become a lamb slain from the foundation of the world. That's the main reason he took on flesh. Verse 14 makes all the difference in the world for us. And to that I say, Amen. Amen. It does make all the difference in the world to us. He became flesh 
And it changes everything for you and me. The all-powerful, all-knowing, ever-present Son of God became flesh and was born on Christmas morning so that He could have a face that could be slapped and spat upon. The Word became flesh so that He could have a back that could be scourged and torn to shreds. The Word of God became flesh so that He could have a head upon which a crown of thorns could be shoved. The Word became flesh so that He could have hands and feet that could be pierced with nails and nailed to a cross. The Word became flesh so He could have a side that could be pierced, bringing forth the flow of blood and water. The the very Son of God, the Word of God, became flesh so that He could have an entire whole body that could spill forth its blood because the Word of God had made it clear without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Why did Jesus become flesh? Why did He leave the comforts of heaven to come down here and be born as a child and grow up to become a man? He did it so that He could die. Make no mistake about it. The greatest miracle of the incarnation is that the Son of God was born to die so that you and I could live. That's the grace and truth. We celebrate this Christmas and it's too wonderful to keep to ourselves. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we praise You. We thank You. We adore You and we worship You. You didn't come to earth because you wanted to hang out, chew the fat. You didn't come to earth because this place was better than where you were already. You didn't come to earth, Lord, because you were getting bored up there in heaven. You came to earth with one main purpose in your mind, to die so that those you loved could live. Lord, we deserved to be beaten. We deserved to be scourged. We deserved to be nailed to that cross. But you were born to die so that we wouldn't have to. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for Christmas morning. We celebrate the truth that you came and lived and died, and three days later conquered death. Lord, we celebrate that this week. And we celebrate the grace that took place when the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. Lord, we thank You that grace and truth come through You. And I pray that we would boldly and joyfully share that with others that need to hear it this week. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. If you have never made a decision to accept Christ, what better week to do that than Christmas week? I want you to be changed as we start off this Christmas week. I want you to be transformed. Don't miss what you have heard from God's Word today. Jesus was born to die so you could live and not die eternally in hell. Jesus came and lived and died for you. 
And he extends this gift. He doesn't force it upon you. He extends it and says, will you receive me today as your Savior and as your Lord? Will you put me in the driver's seat of your life and follow me until I call you home to heaven? If you're ready to make that decision, we'd like to share the ABCs here at Impact. A, admit that you are a sinner and that you need the Savior, Jesus. B, believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and he's your only way to be forgiven. He's your only way to be made right with God. He's your only way to make it to heaven. And C, choose to follow Jesus Christ beginning today by putting him in the driver's seat of your life. If you're ready to make that decision, make it right now. And I'd love for you to reach out to one of our prayer and decision counselors. Their names and phone numbers are at the bottom of the screen. Call or text them. Let them know you want to make that decision. They'd love to pray with you and help you with any questions you have. And I'd love for you to reach out to me at Impact. Let me know you've made that decision. Oh, what a glorious week it is. The week we celebrate the Word becoming flesh and dwelling among us. Do not miss Christmas Eve as I continue this with part two of the message series as we take a little bit deeper look at the Incarnation. Don't miss next Sunday as we finish off this little eight-day series. Oh, you won't want to miss it at all. Invite your friends and family to join you. And let's celebrate the Christ of Christmas this week. Oh, thank you, Lord Jesus, for being our Lord and Savior. We praise you now and forever. God bless you as you love and trust and serve Him.